Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you. Um, we, for all of the spring, which in Florida means all the way back to January, have been doing a series on the book of Hebrews for about four months now, and we have come all the way to the end of chapter 10, beginning in chapter 11. So we're coming to the more familiar parts of the, of the book uh, to many of you. So this morning we're going to be looking at the last few verses of chapter 10. And then the first few verses of chapter 11, you can read along with me if you want in your Bible. Uh, don't worry if you don't have one. There's one, printed, there's one in the, you know, in the uh, pew in front of you. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Uh, we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, through Hebrews 11, verse 9. So let's read together, okay? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he begins this long description of what it means to have faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was made, was was not made out of things. Excuse me, let me start over. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning Events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he was condemned. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him. Of the same promise. Uh, This is God's word. As I said. For almost four months now. We've been making our way through the book of Hebrews. And for nearly all of those four months. Covering the first ten chapters of the book. The writer of Hebrews has been drilling us with gospel truths. Right? Jesus is our high priest. Who has passed through the heavenly places on our behalf. And so we can draw near to God in full assurance of of his love and acceptance because we've been made perfect through the blood of Jesus and invited to come into the very throne room of God. I mean, all these gospel truths that that he's just been trying to drill into our hearts and our minds. But here, towards the end of chapter 10, a transition begins to take place. And now, the Hebrews writer is beginning to talk about what it will look like when those gospel truths begin to penetrate into our hearts and sink down what happens. They produce a life of obedience. But what does that obedience look like, see? And so specifically this morning, what you see here in verse 36 of chapter 10, 
is that the one characteristic of, of this obedience that kind of is the summary characteristic that defines all of it, no matter who you are or what you're doing or what it is God's calling you to, is the gospel gives you power for endurance. Look there, verse 36. You have need of endurance, he says. That is an enduring hopefulness or a patient continuance in whatever it is you're doing. When you meet with an obstacle, you push through it. You don't give up. You don't get sidetracked by disappointments. You keep going no matter how hard it gets. You don't fall apart emotionally or lose your courage and begin to shrink back, he says. See, that's, that's what the people this letter was written to were starting to do. They were struggling with this. They wanted to give up. We've said this over and over again, right? They, they've become discouraged. They've lost heart. And so the Hebrews writer says to them, look, you've got to keep going. You've got to endure. That's what matters. You've got to get to the end. One of the things then that happens in your life, when these gospel truths that he's been trying so desperately to drill into our hearts, one of the things that happens when, that begin, when it begins to sink in is it produces endurance. It turns you into a person who can do hard things and push through them and get the work done even when it gets really difficult. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Okay? And so the doctrine, if you will, of the sermon this morning is just this, that the gospel produces endurance because it fills you with confidence that God will come through for you, that God is for you, and that he will come. See, that's verse 6 of chapter 11. You have to be sure that God is for you and that he will come through for you in your greatest need. And the gospel, the gospel is what assures you of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. The gospel fills you with hope, and with courage, and it leads you to live with boldness and a willingness to radically risk and sacrifice. And so one of the ways you know, again, that the gospel is beginning to penetrate your heart is it makes you steadfast, dauntless. I love that word. Valiant, right? Full of courage. You'll live with an adventurous spirit, with even a certain amount of recklessness. You won't be afraid to take risks, right? You won't be afraid of failure because if your heart's resting in the gospel, failure's not a verdict. And so every story won't have to have, have a happy ending. I mean, I mean, look down at chapter 11. Most won't. But it doesn't matter. No matter what the obstacles are that come your way, you won't quit. They won't shake your confidence. You'll keep going through it all. You'll endure. That's the kind of person, see, that the gospel ultimately produces. That's a Christian whose heart is anchored in the truth of the gospel. And the word the book of Hebrews in the Bible, I think, uses to describe this kind of person is they're a person of faith. They live by faith. See, that's the theme. Uh, let me give you one example from church history that, I, that has been particularly helpful to me and very um, challenging and very inspirational. William Carey who is the father of the modern missionary movement, was a missionary in India. And he left, he left Britain for India. Uh, and for seven years, he labored in India. Seven years. Okay, we're three and a half years into this church plant. Okay, look, look at how full the building is. Okay, and I still find reason to be discouraged. Okay, seven years in India before he, before he saw his first convert. Uh, the work he was doing, one, one of the major projects he was working on was to translate the Bible into the indigenous dialects. He spent years, literally years, working on it, only to have his library catch fire and have to begin from the beginning all over again. He buried children. His wife 
literally went insane. And yet the story of William Carey is is he stayed. He endured. He didn't quit. For 40 years, 40 years he worked in India. And at the end of those 40 years, he saw 26 churches planted. He saw the scripture translated into 34 different languages. And after him came an explosion of missionary activity that not only changed India, but it changed other parts of the world as well. And Ian Murray, who is a Christian biographer and historian, has written about William Carey. And he made the point that it was his enduring confidence in God that enabled him to endure through so much suffering. So Murray quotes him as saying this. This is a quote from from William Carey. He said, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst, amongst so many obstacles it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on that sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. He must reign till Satan has not an inch of territory. That's faith. Right? I mean, William Carey was supremely confident in God. He had been assured by the truth of the gospel that God was for him and that he would come through, and it filled him with a bold determination that I, quite honestly, am awed at. And his most famous line, probably, that you've heard uh, is just the line, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from him. Attempt great things for him. That is the battle cry of those who live by faith. And this is what we need as well. This kind of bold confidence. This power to overcome obstacles and not quit, but endure. Our vision for Winter Haven in Polk County as a church in the world won't be accomplished today or tomorrow or next week. You've heard me say that what we desire to see happen in our city is a 50-year project. Right? You get that? 50 years. And so what we need most, what's going to count the most, what's going, to, what's going to determine whether or not we make it to the end is not necessarily even the energy we have today for the work, but whether or not we endure. Whether or not we find the grace to push forward in faith, especially when we meet with obstacles. And so we, we need to learn something from this passage. So three things about the life of faith then. If we're going to be people of faith who find grace to Jump over the hurdles that are in our way and endure to the end. Three things. I want you to see the dynamics uh, of the life of faith that are given to us here. Secondly, the illustrations of the life of faith which are given to us in Hebrews 11. And then thirdly, the power. What is the power source for living by faith? So, by faith, the hall of faith, and the righteousness of faith. Those are the three points of the sermon. Let's just talk about each of them together for a few minutes. Okay, first, the dynamics of a life of faith. What do we mean when we talk about what it means to live by faith, right? Pay attention to the refrain in chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, Enoch, verse 5. By faith, Noah, verse 7. By faith, Abraham obeyed God, verse 8. That little refrain, by faith, goes on and on throughout the rest of chapter 11. So what does it mean? What does it mean to live by faith? And here's the way I want to put this. I want to try to explain it. Taking my cues from Hebrews 11.1. 1. That all of life, no matter who you are, is a tension between things seen and things unseen, but that are hoped for. It's a tension between things seen and things not seen, but hoped for. Look at, look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for even when you can't see them. That's my paraphrase, okay? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for even when you can't see them. So faith is confidence in God despite the severity of your circumstances. It's the bridge. It's the bridge over the gap between what you can presently see in your life and the things you can't see but you're hoping for because you see there's always a gap. And faith is what gets you across the gap. Now, the classic example is the example of Abraham. There's one thing Abraham wanted more than anything else in the whole world. He wanted a son. And God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and he said, I'm going to give you a son. And the scriptures say that Abraham believed God in his promise, which is remarkable because Abraham had a few things going against him. Sarah, his wife, was barren. And she was old as dirt. Right? And Abraham was old as dirt. And so here's Abraham, old as dirt, married to a woman who's old as dirt and who's proven for, for you know, decades to be barren. See, that's the gap. I'm going to give you a son. Abraham looks around. How in the world is that going to happen? I mean, you know, we've tried for a long time, and now we've moved past the childbearing ages. Right? And so there's this gap. So how do you how do you live in light of that gap when that when that you know when that reality opens up before you how do you what bridge how do you bridge across the gap how do you not quit in the face of something like that there's all kinds of examples let me give you a couple of examples from just conversations I had this week uh, just there's a gap in parenting sometimes you have to parent by faith right as a parent I have a vision for the kind of adults I want my children to become <laughs> right. But it's so easy to get discouraged because there is this huge gap between the end product that I'm praying for and that I envision and the preteen that is in front of me a lot of times. Anybody, only, only I experience this, obviously. Right? So what I see every day in my kids and in myself is selfishness and laziness and ingratitude. What I'm hoping for is selflessness and a good work ethic and a heart of love for God and for others. But but again, there's this huge gap. And so you have to parent by faith. Or your personal spiritual journey works this way too. I, um, <laughs> Jonathan and I got together. We're, you know, we're good friends and we got together at the beginning of the, of the year to do um, New Year's resolutions. And so we exchanged New Year's resolutions and I let him go first. And he kind of gave me all the things that he was really praying that God was going to do in his life this year. And he said, okay, so what are yours? And I said, well, do you have mine from last year? Yeah. Well, just use those again because that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much where I am. You know, I send out a prayer email to some people who have committed to praying for me on a monthly basis. And literally, it's not a whole lot of work because I really just have to cut and paste because it's the same stuff. Month after month after month, and I can't see anybody, right? Am I, again, am I the only one that experiences this? And so, and so they're all, there's this just huge gap between the person that I am, that I'm getting sick to death of, and the person that I so desperately want to be. And it just feels insurmountable at times. Or, let's get, let's get really serious for a minute. Maybe, maybe, and this is part of what I've been praying for for us as a church, maybe God comes to you and calls you to the mission field. I mean, he comes and he begins to speak into your life and say, I think, you know, you need to go sell your house, sell your cars, and move to the mission field. But, you, have, you know, that creates a big problem, right? Because you're happy in your job and everything's going pretty well, and, and you can maybe envision 
a day when you're in Nicaragua working with Robbie and Murray Lathrop, but you don't have a funding mechanism in place yet. And so you need to spend time raising money, but to spend time raising money means that you can't spend time at your job, which means you're going to lose your job. And so how do you you start to see? I mean, there's, there's a gap. So all of life, no matter who you are, no matter what circumstances you you find yourself in, all of life is living this tension between what you can see and what you hope for, but you can't see yet. There's this gap. There's, There's typically, we're living in these moments where there's this gap between what we have at our disposal and what we need, but we don't yet have. And these are the make it or break it moments. You see, how typically do we respond in a situation like this? Well, the natural inclination of the human heart is revealed right here in Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, where he warns us. He says, we typically shrink back. He says, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back from moments like that. This is what the Hebrews have done. They've, verse 35, they've thrown away their confidence, the writer says. That is, they've, they've been confronted with some obstacle they can't see to the other side of, and they've lost heart. They, they've, they've lost, their, their hearts turned to water. They've just lost a sense of confidence. I mean, we're not completely sure what's happened to them, but the heat has been turned up and they've lost their courage and they're in danger of giving up. When I mean, what they need, verse 36, is to endure, to courageously plow ahead and to meet the challenges and not give in to discouragement. But they're shrinking back, see? They're in retreat. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, in some of those circumstances that I that I characterize for you, sometimes it feels like a reasonable option to shrink back, but I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews condemns what they're doing here in verse 39. He says that God has no pleasure in people who shrink back. To shrink back in moments like this, he says, you'll you'll be destroyed. That's what he says, verse 39, that shrinking back, cowardice, timidity, a failure to endure through the hardship, the Hebrews writer doesn't just kind of look at those things and kind of, eh. He, he looks and he condemns those types of responses as sin because they are a fundamental failure to believe the gospel. And so there's a call for us to repent. You see, this is the opposite of faith. This is unbelief. It's what the Bible calls living by sight, not faith. That is, living only in light of what you can see and losing all hope in what has been promised that you can't see. I mean, living by sight means that your present circumstances define your reality for you and not God and his power to save and to bring about, bring about what he's promised. And so if the gap causes you to lose heart, wherever it is, it exposes, what, see, it exposes that before what you're doing is you are drawing your energy and your hope and your confidence and from your own strength and not from God. And now your strength's failing you. See, you were confident, you were full of hope and joy, but you were confident in your own ability to meet your needs. But the moment you begin to see, right, that your resources, your money, your talent, your character, whatever it might be, what, when the moment you begin to see that those things are insufficient to meet your need, the gap opens up and you get discouraged. You lose your confidence and you begin to shrink back because your confidence was never in God to begin with. And what the culture would say in moments like this, see, and this is what I'm trying to kind of, Expose What our culture would tell you, when you're faced with a situation like this, when, when there's a gap, the culture would say the solution is something like, well, what, you, you need to believe in yourself. You know, you really need to, you need to have faith in yourself. You need to grow in self-confidence. And I want to debunk that whole thing and say, that is not the solution. That's the problem. Right? 
See, faith, so one, one response is to shrink back. Faith is the opposite of self-reliance. See, faith, what we're being called to here in this passage is confidence in God to bridge the gap by his power. It's not self-confidence, it's God-confidence. And so C.S. Lewis put it this way. C.S. Lewis said that the ability to press forward and to go out in faith, like we've been talking about, right? You see these gaps and you don't you shrink back, you don't give in to timidity and, and cowardice, you, you, it, you plow ahead, even in the midst of something that feels so overwhelming. He said the ability to do that, to go out in faith, comes when a transition takes place in our hearts. And here's how he describes this transition. He says, we stop being confident about our own efforts and we begin to despair of doing anything for ourselves. Uh, When that happens, he says, all we can do is leave it to God. So it's that whole uh, let go and let God refrain that gets so abused in our culture. And by it, what he means is this. He means, when he says leave it to God, he's careful to say that he means to put all of our trust in God to make good our deficiencies in Christ. That's what it means to live by faith, not by sight. So if you're living by faith and not by sight, then your present circumstances don't define reality for you. God does. The promises of God do. The power of God does. So you're not getting your confidence from your assessment of your ability to meet your own needs. Your confidence is in God, that he will come through for you, despite the reality of the circumstances that are in front of you. See, I was reading Praying Life by Paul Miller this past week a little bit, and he tells a story. This is what I appreciate about Paul is how he works these things out just in the details of our lives. He tells a story of a time when he was really depressed about the lack of spiritual progress he was seeing in his kids, and he was really discouraged. And he said, and then he thought about it more, and he realized that all the things he was discouraged about in his kids were all the things he had learned, that they had learned from him. <laughs> and so he says, he made him even more depressed. And he just, uh, he spent a few days sulking around, and, and then he had a really important revelation, because, you know, he just couldn't figure out a solution. Because So the solution is, my kids... Uh, need correction, you know, they need help. The solution is, I've got to figure out, wait, well, I'm just as messed up as they are. Holy cow, how are we ever going to fix this situation? So he began to sulk around. And he said, and then he had a revelation. And this was the revelation. This is how he put it. He said, I realize that God wanted me depressed about myself and encouraged about his son. I quoted that to somebody this week, and they chided me for saying it because it sounds so countercultural. You can't say that about yourself. Ooh, that just makes us feel weird. But he said, I realized God wanted me to be depressed about myself, about my ability to meet my needs, about my ability to, to, to overcome the sinful tendencies in the lives of my children, but to be hopeful that where I lack power, God is full of power. See? So listen to a letter from Jesus Christ written from, by a 16th century monk. This is Jesus speaking personally to us. He says, I know those moods when you sit there utterly alone, pining, eaten up with unhappiness in a pure state of grief, this near despair. Listen to this. Jesus talking. This near, not really, but just, I mean, this is as if Jesus is talking. He says, this near despair and self-pity are actually a form of pride. What you think was a state of absolute security from which you've fallen was really trusting too much in your own strength and ability, but... I don't want you to rely on your own strength and abilities and plans, but to distrust them and to distrust yourself and to trust me and no one and nothing else. As long as you rely entirely on yourself, you're bound to come to grief. You still have a most important lesson to learn. You must despair of yourself, but you must not despair of me. 
See, Paul Miller goes on to say that it was this experience of despairing of myself and feeling my own weakness and need and then turning to God for help in those moments that is the doorway to an experience of God's power. See, that's the movement of faith. That's what faith does. To live by faith means I feel weak, but I don't despair. Does anybody else have a really hard time with that? I feel weak, but I don't despair. Because God is strong. See, I feel incapable, but I don't get discouraged. Because he is capable. I feel weak and I don't shrink back. But I keep going because my confidence is is in God. That's what the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 11 means by the little phrase, by faith. And it is this living by faith. When you meet with a challenge that's beyond your abilities, you don't shrink back, but you press forward into it. It's that living by faith that that then unleashes God's power in your life. So you see illustrations of this over and over again in chapter 11. Let's look at just a couple. Can we together? So illustrations. Let's get a broader idea of what it means then for us to live by faith. Take Abraham, for example. Abraham, you're going to have a son. I mean, Abraham is the model for faith. God, I'm old as dirt. And my wife is old as dirt. How is this going to happen? My power. And Abraham believes despite the reality of his circumstances. Later, in verse 8 of chapter 11, by faith Abraham obeyed. Isn't this a great business plan, businessman? Okay, not, he went not knowing where he was going. That's awesome. Where are you going? I have no idea. That's irresponsible. No, that's faith. Right? It can be irresponsible. But for Abraham, in response to the call of God, Abraham, I want you to go. Where are we going? God, I don't know. Somewhere over there. I'll let you know later. Let's go. By faith, Abraham, God comes to him and says, give me your son. And by faith, Abraham does it. And what the scripture says is he did it because he believed that even if he killed his son, God could raise him from the dead. He's a model of faith. A second illustration. Later in Hebrews chapter 11, We're told in verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea. You don't have it printed for you, but I just use it as an illustration. And so by faith, the people were confronted, Israel, when they were brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, God took them a very specific path to the promised land. They could have gone another way, but God has led them to this place where now in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them are Pharaoh's armies that are advancing against them. They're trapped in this place, and and, and God has put them there on purpose. Don't you love that? And in their moment of fear and, and um, confusion and worry, Moses comes to them and says, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. That is verbatim the message of Hebrews, by the way. Exodus chapter 13. For the Lord will fight, you only have to stand still. You don't have to do anything. God's going to do the work. And you know the story. By faith... They stood there, not shrinking back. Moses holds the staff over the waters. The waters part, God's people cross, and when the Egyptians try to, the waters sweep back over on top of them. You see that? That moment of faith, not shrinking back, but pushing forward, unleashing the power of God. Let me give you another illustration, which is just, and I get to handpick these because they're my favorite, see? So there are others, but we could have talked about, but these are some of my favorite. By faith, Gideon, verse 32 
And if you remember the story of Gideon, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible and it explains so much of how our lives are supposed to work. But Gideon was a judge in Judges 6, uh, chapter 6 through 8. And God sends him out against an army, the Midianites, that is so vast that the scripture says if you were to look at the heads of the camels, they would be like the grains of sand on the seashore. This is an amazing, powerful army that's amassed to go up against God's people. And Gideon has 40,000 men. So not great odds to begin with. And then if you remember what happens, what happens to his 40,000? They become 300. (laughs) And at some point, God says, you know, here's my worry, Gideon. You have too many people. And I'm afraid that you'll take the credit for the battle yourself. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your 40,000 down to 300. And here's my favorite part of the story. And Gideon, I want you to go out against the army that's amassed against you. And here are the weapons I want you to take. Not a sword and a shield and a spear. I want you to take a torch and a trumpet. I mean, are you serious? I mean, can you, Matt, right? I mean, really? This is the plan? I mean, do you see? You see what God's doing, right? Gideon, Gideon was a coward, and so God exposed his weakness to show him his strength. And Gideon blows the trumpets, and they light the torches, and the Midianites start killing one another. And God roots them. Another of my favorite stories from the book of Judges. By faith, we're told later in this chapter 11, a man named Barak, who is less familiar and less well-known, but his story is really great. Barak is called by God to go out against an army that is characterized as having 900 iron chariots, which in that day would have been an over... I mean, that's a, the chariots were the cavalry of that day. That was an overwhelming cavalry. No army could possibly stand against them. And so Barak, being a good military leader, decides to take the people and to go up into the mountains. Good strategy, right? Because what happens to chariots in the mountains? They're obsolete. And yet God comes to him in his little mountain hideaway and he says, Barak, I have a problem. You've got to go down there on the Kishon River plain and go out against them. So, home field advantage for the enemy. But I want you to go. And what we're told is, is that the river flooded in the midst of the battle. And because of the flood, the mud became so thick that the chariots began to sink down. And what was Sisera's advantage against Barak became a disadvantage and the Israelites rooted the enemy. But what I want you to see is in all these stories, what we're shown is it is God's power that saves his people. But, but they only come to know his power through their weakness. So in each case... The people involved felt weak, but in their feeling, in their experience of their weakness, God, in being exposed to be weak by God, they did not shrink back. Barak came down in response to God's call. Gideon went out with torches and trumpets in response to God's call. Abraham, not knowing where God was going to take him, in obedience to the command of God, went out. And in going out, They experienced the power of God. See, they didn't retreat. They felt weak, but they didn't despair. They didn't give up. They endured even through the difficult circumstances. So these illustrations then are meant to encourage us to persevere through our own struggles, to run the race that's set before us with endurance, to not give in unbelief and begin to shrink back. See, this is what what we so desperately need in our lives. So the final thing we've got to talk about this morning then is where do you find the power to endure and to live by faith? And the answer is right here in this text in verse 7. 
And we read there, by faith Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, Noah lived by faith. He courageously obeyed God about things he could not see. He built an ark in the middle of a desert and told people it was going to rain. He didn't shrink back. For 120 years, he preached the judgment of God that was to come. But in doing that, the text also says that he not only lived by faith, but he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And that's the important thing. I want to finish there and then we're done. So let me, let, let me, let me say it this way. The way you live by faith, where you find the power to live by faith, is to know and to experience the righteousness that is by faith. Now, let me explain. In Galatians 4, Paul, the apostle, uses Abraham as an illustration of what it means to be saved by grace and not by keeping the law. So God promised Abraham a son, but he had a big problem, and we've already gone over that. Abraham did not have the power in himself to bring about God's promise. He needed God's power. And that's what the scripture commends him for, that despite his weakness... Romans chapter 4, his old age and the barrenness of his wife, he was fully convinced, he did not waver, God could do for him what he could not do for himself. And in Galatians 4, Paul says salvation works the same exact way. We need a righteousness, the way Abraham needed a son. And so how do you get the righteousness you need? Well, you can try to do it in your own power, like Abraham did with Hagar where he got tired of waiting on God, and his wife came to him and said, I'm barren. Look, if we're ever going to get this done, we're going to have to take it into our own hands. I have this maidservant. Go and sleep with her, and maybe God will give us a son through her. And so Abraham turned to his own power, and the result was absolutely disastrous. And Paul says, look, you need a righteousness. And you can try to go about it the way that Abraham did, but it will only lead to slavery. And that's the impulse of every religious system the world has ever known, and it's deeply rooted in every human heart, that the desire to create a system by which we can develop a righteousness and then give it to God. So how do, you, how do you get the righteousness you need? Well, through your own moral efforts, right? So you work hard to have a good moral record, and then you give it to God. And when you give it to God, then in response to your giving it to God, God will love you and listen to your prayers, and he'll come through for you, and he'll save you. That's, that's religion, see? But the gospel is something completely different. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this. If you look there, Noah was an heir of the righteousness that is to come. And what is an heir? An heir is somebody who gets rich through somebody else's hard work. And so the righteousness that comes through faith is not a righteousness that we work out and then give to God. It is a righteousness that he works out and then gives to us. It comes from him, the righteousness from God. It's his, not ours. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. It's something outside of our, our, us that's only ours by faith. And so the requirement for righteousness is this, that we must run a marathon, a spiritual marathon, when in reality we can't run 100 yards without being out of breath. That's what it's like. And spiritually, we're like Abraham. We are weak and shriveled up and powerless in ourselves to do what's required of us. And so how do we get the righteousness we need? Please don't think it's by doing by through your own efforts. How do we get the righteousness we need? First, by despairing of ourselves. And so we need to repent not only of our sins, but also of our righteousness. That is all of the ways we look to God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You know, 
our righteousness is all the ways we, we try to get a name for God in ourself. <coughs> Excuse me. So how do we get the righteousness we need? Well, the metaphor, that's the working metaphor of the passage that is meaningful to us is the metaphor of the ark. And you know the story of Noah. God comes and says, I'm going to judge the earth. There's a flood of judgment coming. And Noah, I need you to build an ark and get, in, get inside it. And as long as you're inside the ark, you'll be safe. And so what the scriptures teach us is that there's a flood of judgment coming against us. And so the way of salvation is not to imitate the righteous life of Jesus. The way of salvation for us is to hide in Jesus the way Noah hid in the ark. Jesus is our righteousness. And here's what this means, see. When you see God meeting your needs for salvation in Jesus, then you'll come to believe that he'll meet your need in every other way. But if you continue to believe, if you and I continue to believe that salvation is about us and what we do for God, then at the center of our lives, what the book of Hebrews has been teaching us is there's going to be a pervasive insecurity. You'll never be completely sure you've done enough. And so you'll always be trying to prove yourself. And the irony is, is that will make you a coward. You'll only move out when you're certain you'll be successful because failure will feel like a verdict. And so more often than not, you'll shrink back and not risk. You'll shrink back from conflict. You'll shrink back from uncertainty. <coughs> but, if, but if you know that salvation is what God does for you, if you know that righteousness is what God gives you, not what you give to God, if you're hiding in Jesus and his righteousness, see then you'll be completely secure in God's love for you. And here's what this will do. You'll be full of assurance and confidence and hope, and it'll make you bold. You won't be afraid of failure because failure doesn't mean God's abandoned you. I want to say this carefully. You won't be afraid of failure because failure won't mean God's abandoned you. It means he's working out something unexpected good in your life. No matter how hard it gets, you'll press forward. You'll be immune to discouragement. Wouldn't that be great? That's what we need. So expect, think, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Don't shrink back when things get hard. Risk, adventure, dream for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. You have a heavenly father who is crazy about you, as dysfunctional as you are. <laughs> He's not miserly. His generosity is beyond anything you've ever dared imagine. He's not unmoved. His compassion is without measure. He's not disinterested. His commitment to you is sure and enduring and unshakable. So no matter what gap you might be facing, take heart. The promise is that he will come through for you. It may not look like what you think. It may not even be on this side of eternity, but he is good. Do you doubt it? Then look to the cross and the generosity and the compassion and the commitment he's shown to you there. And the giving of his beloved son as a sacrifice for your sins. Look to the cross until it fills you with confidence and assurance and hope that can make you steadfast against every obstacle you might face, that you might endure to the end. Let's pray God does that in us, can we? Father, we do pray. And thank you for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the cross for us, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and from heaven has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The Spirit now at work in us to provide us with the power and the energy and the want to that we need in order to endure past every obstacle. Holy Father, give to us the Holy Spirit in great measure that we might be people like those that we read of in Hebrews 11 who live by faith, that we might carry on the legacy of living by faith in the city of Winter Haven 
in the world and that through us, even in our weakness, in our sin, and in our limited capacities, that you might come and by display of your great power among us do something beyond what we can even imagine or think. I pray for that in families. I pray for that in marriages. I pray for that among parents and children. I pray for that uh, in our city. I pray for that in our work in Nicaragua and Uganda and throughout the world that you do this, Lord Jesus, for the sake of your great name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, very quickly, one more plug. Please come tonight and celebrate with us. This is a big deal for our church. So even if you're new or you've only been around for a few weeks, whatever it might be, uh, tonight we're going to have a reception together, which would be a great time to get to know some people in the church. And so please come uh, and celebrate that with us. Six o'clock, it'll be about an hour-long service, uh, but it's going to be a worship service, and we will ordain those men, and we are very, very excited about that. But we, we, we are begging and pleading for people, please come and, and be with us. Now, uh, God sends us out as his people in the lineage of faith presented to us in Hebrews 11 to do what those in Hebrews 11 did. And he tells us what that is down in verses 33 and 34. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Those are some big things, right? And yet, the call in our lives is no different than the call in the lives of those people in Hebrews 11. But the good news is, and the reason we have the benediction at the end of the service is, the courage to go and to dare to even attempt things like that, right? The courage to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, which is the only way we're going to change a city, is to know that as you go, God has already promised at the outset that he goes with you to bless and to keep you and to provide for you. And that is the promise of the benediction. So uh, if you're struggling and your prayer is, Lord, I believe, increase, increase my faith, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Then grab a hold of this benediction. That's why we put our hands out like this, saying, oh God, give it to me, bring it to me, I need it, right? I'm receiving it. So grab a hold of it, that he might give you the faith to endure and to have courage. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.